Episode 62 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on Mike Pence and the so-called Billy Graham rule. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, and with me today are Drew Vantland and Alexis Neal. Say hi, Drew and Alexis. Hi, how you doing, Victoria? Good. Uh, So, Drew, I'll have you lead off on the introductions since you're new to the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself and about uh, your history as both a Christian and a feminist, whatever those things mean to your identification. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, so I have been on a handful of episodes on Sectarian Review. Um, I'm uh, just finishing up my second year in the PhD program in philosophy here at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. Um, I live here with my wife and uh, two three-year-olds, we're actually out of town for the next few days because my wife is a very loving spouse and offered to get them out of state while I finish up um, my last paper of the semester. So, as far as um, Christianity and feminism, I have been mostly in reformed circles until moving to Kentucky. Uh, my wife and I attend a UMC church down here, um, not necessarily uh, for any doctrinal reasons, but more because it's really um, locally and engaged in uh, social justice issues in the neighborhood and also um, in uh, the culture in general. Um, That's something that the UMC church is is super great at and that I have always really admired. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm learning more and more about it and pretty impressed. Uh, Definitely coming from the far left wing of Calvinism. Um, so I, I feel like I'm pretty ecumenical in terms of my own background. I went to um, a small Christian liberal arts school and got my master's at a small uh, Christian philosophy institute up in Toronto. Um, so this has actually been, the last couple of years is, is the first time I've really kind of been outside of the any kind of Christian fold, even in terms of my uh, educational background. As far as feminism, I remember calling myself a feminist early on in college. Uh, I also remember saying really offensive things about feminists back in junior high. So I feel like sometime between the time, yeah, like ages 13 and 20, something changed for me. I don't think in college I really would have endorsed a lot of the views that I do now. Um, I think every level, kind of every year in higher ed has um, pushed me to reflect more on uh, questions of gender and um, power and oppression and, and things of that nature. I feel a little strange calling myself a feminist just because I know some people prefer the term ally. So I guess I would adopt that just out of deference for, you know, 
the fact that I'm a man, but I don't know how much we want to get into, you know, policing our terms here. We're, yeah, uh, we're not going to police you here, uh, <laughs> All right, especially on your first episode. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm pretty sure we decided um, on our episode a, a year, a year and a half ago, I have no idea when it was, um, that male feminist was an okay term. Oh, cool. um, I, I might be contradicting myself. I don't know. But uh, yeah, we're we're cool with whatever you want to call yourself in that regard, as long as you're helping us out. Great, thank you. Uh, Alexis, uh, how about you? Introduce yourself uh, for any listeners that might not know you yet. Uh, sure. Yeah. So uh, my name is Alexis Neal. Uh, if the Neal part sounds at all familiar to. Uh, other listeners within the the Christian Humanist Podcast Network, it is probably because my husband, Coyle Neal, is one of the uh, voices of City of Man, the politics podcast uh, in the CHP network. So, uh, yeah, so he's there, and and I've been blessed to participate now and then over on the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, We live in southern Missouri, where uh, he teaches full-time and I teach part-time at a Baptist university. Uh, and then the rest of my time, I mostly spend uh, with our two boys, um, one of whom is a, a an infant and one is a toddler. So uh, they keep me fairly busy. Uh, and then recently, I've become a little bit more involved in uh, local government as well. Um, by training, I, I am an attorney, although I'm not currently practicing. So um, I'm not as involved in the humanities side of things as, as a lot of uh the the Christian Humanist Network folks, but they are kind enough to let me chime in from time to time. Uh, thanks, Alexis. And it's not just kindness. Uh, if you are, are too modest to say it for yourself, I will endorse that you are super smart and clever, and that is why we have you on. Uh, and also, today I'm going to make you talk about legal stuff. So, there Yay. you go. Yay! <laughs> Um, All right, so before I get into the episode, I guess I should introduce myself. Uh, I am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I'm one of the founding members of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Currently, I live in Minnetonka, Minnesota, with my husband, Michael, of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and our two cats, uh, who are currently locked out of the bedroom where I am recording. So if there is a banging noise... uh, during this episode, that's because one of the cats has learned to uh, get on her hind legs and knock when she is excluded from somewhere, so hopefully that doesn't happen. Uh, I got my doctorate in Renaissance Lit and Gender Studies from Florida State University, and uh, am currently uh, about a year and a half into a postdoc at Public Radio International uh, through the ACLS, um, which puts humanities PhDs to work at nonprofits to prove that we have usable skills and should not all live in boxes under bridges. (laughs) So, uh, that's me. Now that introductions are out of the way, um, we should jump into tonight's episode. So, um, about six to eight weeks ago, probably closer to eight once this is actually published, um, there was an interview with uh, Karen Pence, wife of current Vice President Mike Pence in the Washington Post, 
that mentioned uh, that the vice president adheres to what's commonly called the Billy Graham rule. Uh, that is, he makes it a point to never be alone with a woman that is not his wife. Um, there was lots of public outcry um, in lots of publications, um, lots of conversations about it. Liberals and conservatives had a lot to say about this. Um, we're going to talk about some specific responses in a little bit. But given that this rule kind of is at the intersection of gender roles and how people live out Christian theology, uh, we here at the CFP thought that uh, we were in a pretty good position to, to hash this out a little bit and discuss the issue. So first, a little bit of um, kind of socio-historical background about the Billy Graham rule. Um, it's actually a small part of a larger document, a document that is most commonly called the Modesto Manifesto. Um, and the Modesto Manifesto comes about in the early days of Billy Graham's Crusades ministry. The kind of uh, upper level board in this ministry come together and write it. And they write it in order to follow uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.22, which says that uh, we are to abstain from all appearance of evil. So I, um, I read a couple of versions of the manifesto uh, from a couple of different seminaries. And what's most interesting about it is uh, while... Uh, what has come to be called the Billy Graham rule, not uh, being alone with someone of the opposite sex, is present. It's actually more than that. Uh, it has four parts. Uh, honesty, integrity, purity, and humility. Uh, the purity part is uh, be accountable and don't be alone with uh, some version, say another woman, other version, say a person of the opposite sex to whom you are not married. Um, but the other three parts aren't as sort of common in terms of the public consciousness. So again, the other three parts are uh, honesty, so be honest with the media, communicate clearly, communicate clearly with your home churches, don't make up things like uh, sizes of crowds or number of engagements you've been asked for. Second part is integrity. Um, be clear on financial matters, submit expenditures and uh, reviews to the board. Um, every local crusade has open books, so integrity there. Uh, we already mentioned purity and humility, so encourage and edify all believers. Don't speak badly of another Christian. So I think it's really interesting that of those four things, which seem not terrible to me. Uh, the purity one is the only part of the rule that um, has sort of hung around publicly. Um, Alexis and Drew, what do you make of this? Why did we kind of hold on to that bit? Well, I think in the internet age, the humility one has gotten more difficult to live up to. I think one of the favorite pastimes of uh, kind of Christian public intellectuals is almost unavoidably casting aspersions on, you know, members of the flock on the far end of their particular worldview. Um, that's my first thought. 
Alexis? Uh, rather cynically, I would say, because it's the sexiest rule. I mean, it's, it's you know, keeping good books is kind of boring. Um, being nice to other people and not speaking poorly of them, as you mentioned, is hard to live up to um, and uh, ultimately kind of boring. Um, and, uh, you know, speaking the truth, hard to do and kind of boring. Um, but the uh, the idea of being separate uh, from the other gender or, or being uh, particularly careful in all of these rules uh, has the distinction of being unique uh, to the Christian or at least the religious world. I don't think that uh, you see that very often in a purely secular context. Um, and then because of its uh, reasoning, right, it, it has that, that whiff of... Uh, of sexuality, right? Because that's that's part of part of the motivation is to avoid uh, the appearance of or the actual participation in illicit sexual behavior. So, um, I think that that's a lot of it, both because it it is different from the rest of the world, uh, and because it it's it's shiny and it catches our attention. It's an it's an issue that people care about, and 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 the headlines will sell. But again, that's a, somewhat of a cynical response. I. I think it's a fair point, uh, cynical though it may be. I, I think that is, is the part of the rule that kind of is the most the most big C Christian in, in the eyes of um of a secular culture maybe, kind of kind of stands out the most. Uh so I, I think that's a fair point. Um, so before we move on from the background, the other thing I think we need to mention here is um tr- try to offer some of a reading, um, some kind of a context for First Thessalonians five twenty two, which I mentioned, um, is the uh, the inspiration for the Modesto Manifesto um, that we are to abstain from all appearance of evil. So I, I did some looking around and um, and found a few places where um, some bloggers and some pastors said. Um, that's all well and good. We we should try to abstain from all appearance of evil. But what does that mean? What does it look like? Uh, and the most helpful blog I found on the subject um, is is by a pastor. Um, he calls his blog "My Only Comfort," and he recommends that we read the verses um, that come before. Uh, verse 22, verses 19 through 21, um, always good to, to read around a verse, right, and not, uh, not proof text. So I'm going to read ahead a bit and then quote from his blog, uh, just to establish some context. Um, so Paul writes to the Thessalonians, quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. And then uh, the blogger writes, what Paul is saying is this, when you hear the word of God preached to you, don't despise it, but at the same time, don't swallow everything you hear. Test it according to the scriptures. If it's good, grapple it unto your soul with hoops of steel. If it's evil, shun it, no matter what appearance it takes. Um, And then he says, in context, if someone comes to you and says, don't do good to others because someone might think you're doing evil, uh, maybe we should apply 1 Thessalonians 5.22 and reject that as bad counsel. So he's saying, um, essentially, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, uh, he's saying that... um, 
appearance of evil is sort of not as simple as all that, that it might be culturally relative, that um, we need to think about um, what the verses around it define as good and evil actions too, um, and, and not take that one verse out of context so much, um, particularly when thinking about public behavior. Am I, am I off base here? Do you think that's what he's saying? No, I think that's I think that's what he's saying. I mean, it makes sense, right? You could avoid the appearance of evil by being completely inactive and passive, right? And that's clearly contrary to other commands in scripture. So um, it it is, as with so many other things, it is one aspect we are to keep in mind that we honor God um, by living above reproach. And that's the other phrase that I've I've seen used. Um, in this context. Uh, so we want to try to give the world no excuse for, um, for attacking us and, and no, uh, no basis for claiming that we are uh, living in a way that is inconsistent with the gospel that we share and that we profess to believe in. Um, and so we don't just live right. We want to make sure that it, it we are you know living above reproach and, and in a way or with, with an eye towards how we're perceived by the world around us. But uh, that is one aspect, one way that we honor God. We don't throw it out and forget about it completely, but we also don't let it uh, overwhelm or erase all of the other uh, instructions we are given for ways that we honor God, if that makes sense. Yeah, that that's great. I think you, uh, I think you just did a better job than I did. So uh, I'm going to move along. Uh, what about our personal experiences of the Billy Graham rule? Um, have you guys run into this in church circles or business circles? Um, Alexis, you go first. Um, so let's see. Uh, in church circles, absolutely, I have run into this. Um, I have been a part of cons more conservative churches my whole life. Um, and I've sort of taken this uh, as a given, uh, knowing that uh, you know there may be men in my congregation who could get coffee with our male pa pastor one on one, and they could talk about all manner of stuff. But that is just not something that's going to be, um, by and large, uh, an opportunity that's available to me. Um, uh, I could get coffee maybe with the pastor and someone else, uh, so it's not like I have no access. Uh, but that does tend to come sometimes with a little extra hassle of you know finding someone else and working out logistical details and things like that. Um, and it does sometimes gall a little bit, um, particularly if you're in a church that says, oh, well, rather than rather than having an elder or a pastor who's willing to overcome those logistical challenges and still wants to hear from and interact with the women in the congregation, in some churches that, that works out to be more of a shuffling the women off to the elder's wife or the pastor's wife. And um, I usually didn't want to talk to the elder's wife or the pastor's wife, and I particularly didn't want to talk to them with all of their kids around, which is often logistically how it happened. Um, so it, it did gall a little bit, but um, but I've never questioned the basis of the rule. Uh, I think it is. I think it is valid, um, and I would I would encourage them to continue to apply it, even if it's frustrating for me um, to deal with at times. I think they're wise to have it, um, and I never took that as a, an accusation that I was you know, seeking to meet with them in order to seduce them or, or for any other um, untoward motivation. I just understood that, look, 
problems can happen when you have these kinds of interactions and there are people out there who maybe don't have the best motives both of both genders and so these rules are here to protect everybody and so it just never bothered me in that sense it was annoying but I didn't take it as an accusation uh, in any way. Uh, also, I've actually implemented at various times a similar rule for myself. Um, I've been uh, very cautious about the circumstances under which I will spend time alone with someone of the opposite sex, both before I was married and now that I am married. I don't have... It's not an inflexible rule, but it definitely gives me pause um, when those kinds of opportunities arise. Uh, and I would prefer to have thing, have more of a group interaction if possible. Um, uh, for a lot of the same reasons, I think, that, that men who practice the Billy Graham rule use. Uh, so I've been sort of on both sides of it and at times been dissatisfied with the way that it, it works its way, it works itself out. But... Um, and that's going to sort of be my theme for, for today, I think, is uh, I like the rule, I like the reasoning, but we need to be very careful and very thoughtful in how we apply it uh, so that we can minimize the awkwardness and the inconveniences and ultimately the harm that it can cause to others. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of my experience with it. Oh, and I guess I should say it hasn't really come up in the workplace. None of the places I've worked um, were... Uh, like working lunches or, or anything like that taking place one-on-one. -on -one. So I didn't feel like I had any different access than my male coworkers. Uh, they might go to lunch with the boss, but I just, I never, it was never a, a working lunch in the sense that it affected what we were doing. Um, although I did have at least one employer who was extremely, extremely careful. He brought his wife to everything we did, basically any um, like office lunch, even where it would be all of us working in the office, his wife was, was uh, invited along. Um, but again, uh, I just I never felt like that reflected on the work. If anything, it it meant maybe I didn't get to know him personally as well. But it, it was not something that reflected on my professional life uh, in any way. But that's that's most of my experience. Um, before we go to Drew, can I ask you a kind of pushy question, Alexis? Always. Uh, so, first of all, like, thanks for the complexity in your answer. I, th I think it's it's good to kind of realize both the good and the bad that can come out of situations like this. But um, given that you mentioned that you try to apply the rule to yourself um, in terms of, um, in some situations, not being alone, alone with men, um, why do you think that that's not the way the rule exists as it exists publicly. What, why do you think when we talk about it, when we talk about it in Christian circles, it's sort of gendered one way and not the other way? That's a really good question. Um, I think on one level, it's because the people making the rule uh, are people in a particular kind of role, right? So Billy Graham is a preacher uh, or was, you know, was an active uh, evangelist and preacher. Um, it's more of a, a male role, right? The, the idea of a pastor, um, for a lot of denominations, uh, including mine, right, that the position of leadership in the church is reserved for a man. So therefore, if you're thinking about a rule for leaders in the church to observe, um, it will necessarily be uh, gendered to some extent. Uh, so I think that's part of it. And even in the secular world, right, having women in positions of authority still a relatively new thing. Um, for the most part, when we're talking about senators or congressmen or governors or vice presidents, we're still talking about um, men, by and large. 
so I think that is part of it. It, it to some extent is just uh, a function of whatever forces are 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 making those fields predominantly male um, for good or ill. Uh, those same forces are sort of affecting the, the gendering of the rule. Um, also, I think to some degree there is a difference in the risks for men and for women. And I think um, uh, we'll see this actually when we get to the reading recommendations part. But but for women, I think there's, um, right, I think women are more concerned about whether they're going to be physically assaulted <laughs> in some situations if they're not preserving the rule. Um, whereas I think... Um, men seem to be more concerned about the, the reputation side of things. And I don't know if that's because an affair is considered less detrimental to a woman's reputation. That doesn't sound like it's true. Um, but it does seem like they're they're worried about slightly different things. Um, or maybe it's because men feel like they're more likely to be tempted into sexual misconduct and, and women tend to feel like they're going to be victimized but not necessarily tempted to voluntarily participate. But I guess that's a long way of saying I don't really know. Okay, um, I wish we had more time to kind of unwrap all the interesting patriarchal implications of those differences. Um, maybe we'll get into some of them later in the episode. Uh, but for now, uh, Drew, tell us about your experience with the Billy Graham rule. Yeah, so I'd never heard it thematized um, with that particular name before. I think I'd kind of picked it up as like, this is the appropriate model for or something along those lines is kind of the appropriate model for, um, you know, intergender relationships outside of marriage. Um, in college, I struck up a number of really close relationships with um, women and uh, kind of in succession, they all got romanticized and burned out. <laughs> Uh, they get like in one way or the other, um, like the, my closest friendships kind of ended up getting, uh, I don't know. It, it, it definitely has given me pause since then to think about the, um, those kind of dynamics. And one of those friends, um, after I got married, we were, or I'm sorry, after I was engaged and, um, we had planned to go out and have a drink, um, and like catch up and stuff. And then something happened and it, it didn't happen. And then there was the sense that, okay, well that can never happen. Um, cause you know, now I'm married. And, and so that, um, kind of dimension of, of our friendship is now kind of forever bracketed or something. And I think early on in my marriage, um, there's definitely a sense that, uh, I was particularly, self paranoid about just the yeah even the a whiff of impropriety i remember one time i was um hanging out with a fellow student and we were just like um talking after class and then she asked if i wanted to go get lunch and i had never thought that situation through and didn't know how to say no and ended up feeling really guilty when we went to get sushi or something. And I remember um, excusing myself to go to the bathroom and calling my wife from the basement of this restaurant and just like feeling extremely uh, in the wrong. And uh, I think in the years since, and as my wife and I have been talking about it, we're like, yeah, that was, that was kind of a crazy attitude to have about, um, something as innocuous as, you know, uh, 
catching up with a fellow student. So I think both my and my wife's views have have changed about it over the years, but I hadn't really thought about it explicitly until this Mike Pence um, business kind of blew up all over the internet. So I'm glad to have the chance to think it through with you guys. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Um, my, my own experiences, um, that's something that I, um, mostly didn't really think about, uh, until I started teaching, um, until I started having, uh, conferences with students and, and those kinds of things. Um, and, and then for me, it was sort of less, less about projecting my theology, though, you know, personally, my, my beliefs did come into play, but it was more about kind of being, uh, above reproach, as Alexis said earlier, which is, is how I, the term, uh, the phrasing I always heard used there. Um, so, one time when I was in graduate school at the beginning of my doctoral program, um, I was having a conference with this one student who, um, what was going through some things personally, and we were having a conference about one of his essays, and uh, during the course of our conversation, um, he was sitting in a chair across from me, and we were sort of facing each other. During the course of our conversation, he put his hand on my thigh, and I was shocked by this, and I said, you know, that's not appropriate, you can't do that. Um, had a very clear conversation with him, and after he left, the first thing I did was make sure that um, someone else in the graduate student offices, which were like a giant basement full of chairs, there there weren't um, there were kind of cubicle walls, but not a lot of separation. Um, I the first thing I did was make sure that somebody else in the basement at the time had seen what had happened, um, so that that it was clear. Um, you know, that I discouraged him, that I did not instigate anything, that I was essentially above reproach. So that that's the one kind of professional experience I've had that put me in that mindset, um, though I, I did grow up um, exposed to the Billy Graham rule um, growing up in Southern Baptist churches, but I was much younger and kind of, since I wasn't an adult, didn't have it directly applied to me in those contexts. So that's my personal experience. Uh, any other comments uh, before we move on to the readings for today? I don't think so. Okay, uh, so Drew, your reading is up first. Tell us about uh, the Atlantic piece that we looked at. Yes, this piece was called Mike Pence and the Billy Graham Rule by Andrew Exum. Uh, the things that stuck out to me from this uh, is he, I mean, he's recapping the situation uh, and the particular points that he was um, kind of extrapolating were uh, questions about the, well, he starts off with talking about um, not just eating alone, but I uh, wouldn't attend events featuring alcohol, which I don't remember if that showed up in all the other accounts. But I thought that was interesting. Uh, I'll get back to that in a second. And then he concludes um, that men and women are both sinful. Uh, there's this, you know, kind of fallenness of human nature. 
And there go I but for the grace of God. And he ultimately concludes by saying, you know, this is um, maybe not the the best way to pursue uh, integrity, but it's certainly understandable. And uh, he ends by saying, the Pences at the very least seem to have a healthy understanding of their own weaknesses. And that's something to which we should all aspire. And uh, I think that attitude resonates with me because that was my first response to hearing about the situation. Uh, and it brought me back to Harry Potter where I think I, – I haven't read it for several years. But I think there's a scene where he's reflecting on how the Sorting Hat had uh, – ultimately placed him in in Hogwarts after considering Slytherin and it had taken his own kind of thoughts into account and because uh, he's questioning his motives you know is he could have just as easily have ended up in Slytherin um, and gone down the the road of Voldemort um, but he didn't and he's wondering if it was all luck but then um, as he reflects on it you know it occurs to him that well there's uh, like the very fact that he wanted to avoid putting himself in that kind of situation um, itself is a an indicator of character. And there's something about that attitude that I, I think is profoundly true. And so I want to extend that um, kind of charity to Mike Pence. But I also, I, I think that um, Karen Swallow Pryor's view is probably closer to my own on second thought. But anyway, what comes out in the XM piece is a few uh, points that I wanted to unpack. So first of all, I mean, he's referring paradigmatically to um, married couples as husband and wife, which is um, maybe a little bit tone deaf to the the climate of 2017, where we've seen um, kind of marriage equality uh, among gay and lesbian couples emerge. I don't know why... Uh, why that doesn't come up for him at all. The fact that not everyone, um, if the issue here is sexual, um, temptation, then it's not necessarily just going to be cross gender. <laughs> um, presumably it's, um, you could have a gay couple or a lesbian couple, um, instituting something very much like the, uh, the Billy Graham rule for themselves. Um, in same-sex situations, um, I find it hard to believe that there would be that many people who would pursue a, a policy like that, but it's, you know, uh, conceivable. Um, so I, I didn't understand why he didn't um, address that. That seems um, pretty relevant to the growing awareness of, um, uh, you know, the challenge to heteronormativity in our culture. He, as he far does as, identify uh, as heterosexual, what though. it means to have an affair... He gestures at this. Um, he says that uh, we have guardrail, or I'm sorry, people like the Pence have guardrails to protect their marriage from both the temptations of the flesh as well as the many other ways in which marriages can atrophy or grow cold over time. Um, and I appreciated him saying the many other ways um, because I think the, like uh, Alexis was saying earlier, we have a tendency to. Um, conjure up, you know, very sexual uh, images because it's sexy. But what's really at stake in an affair is, you know, so much more than just bodily interaction. Um, and it's probably equally, if not, maybe if not more so, the emotional connection um, that is maybe most spiritually problematic in in terms of connecting with um, someone who's not your spouse. Um, the 
notion of guardrails, I go back and forth whether I, I like that metaphor for um, conceptualizing discipline and self-discipline, and this will come up um, in, the, uh, in the piece in a little bit, talking about virtue ethics. Um, and then finally, um, I'm curious about what's at stake here, really, um, because I think it's, it, it's really more than about having an affair in terms of uh, sexual interaction or in terms of emotional interaction. Uh, what really concerns me is the power dynamics, and I think that this didn't get elaborated at all in this piece, um, even though he's referencing very clear um, potential problems in, in these interactions. So that's why I mentioned alcohol before, because this has become such a, um, a hot uh topic in terms of discussing consent. Um, we're talking about mentorship and uh, privilege in terms of meeting with a superior. If there's any um, any question of you know romantic entanglement, I think the real problem is not infidelity. The, the, the greater um, problem that we're dealing with is, uh, you know, ver kind of discussing sexual assault or at least um, sexual coercion of a sort. And we'll get to that um, later in the recommendation that I have. Those were just some of my thoughts from this piece. What did you guys think? Um, I'll go first, I guess. So a couple of things. Um, your point about the kind of heteronormativity of the piece, uh, I also noticed it, but I, I thought that since Exum does, he, he sort of identifies as a heterosexual in the piece, um, not to excuse him for um, not acknowledging other relationships, um, particularly since uh, they're legal across the country now, uh, marriage-wise, but I, I think he, he might have just been um, thinking personally and projecting. I'm, I'm not sure that that was... Um, I, I don't think his intent was ill, um, but maybe I shouldn't speak for him. Uh, that was just my my impression there. Um, also, secondly, um, I I liked what you talked about in terms of uh, power differential, and I I think a a lot of people's objections that I saw on the internet to um, to this uh, exclusion was that. Um, that women aren't being given a position um, where they can express themselves in terms of uh, having a connection to power, especially if they're in a business situation. Like I saw, I'm trying to find the exact tweet, I will definitely put it in the show notes, but I saw a tweet from uh, Laura Ortberg-Turner, who, if everyone listening to my voice is not following on Twitter. Um, they should be. Uh, you've probably heard of her, or at least heard of her very smart, uh, fairly noteworthy family. Uh, her father is John Ortberg, the theologian, and her sister is um, Mallory Ortberg, who um, used to write for the sadly now defunct humor website, The Toast, um, and, and is now uh, Dear Prudence, uh, the advice columnist, and also doing a bunch of other really wonderful things. But uh, what Laura Ortberg-Turner said is that um, 
what Mike Pence is doing is literally denying women a seat at the table by um, enacting this rule that he's not letting them be a part of political processes. Uh, so I, I think that that's that's an, an interesting viewpoint in terms of um, the the power dynamics at play here. Um, Alexis, what do you think? Uh, well, I actually really appreciated this piece because it, it fit with what I was saying earlier, that I think there is a laudable purpose for the rule, uh, and I think there's a lot of good there, but there is no denying that it has been applied in, in a way, in many cases, that has been harmful um, to, uh, to women. Um, and so what I keep coming back to is, is the, the two greatest commandments, right, that Jesus tells us about is to, to love God, to love our neighbor. So I think of you know, our quest for purity, our desire to live our lives in a way where our, our sexual behavior uh, comports with the purity of God and the way that he has instructed us to live our lives. Like that is good. That is a, a prime goal. We love God by obeying him and, and keeping his commands. Um, and and that that is something that we should not sacrifice. But there's a second part. Right? There's a second rule. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So as we seek to strive for purity and holiness in our personal lives. We want to do it in a way that harms our neighbor as little as possible. And indeed, we want to take on ourselves the burden of actively loving our neighbor. Uh, and so I think I think that the rule itself can be viewed as this sort of almost passive thing. I will just I will just avoid all of these these um, interactions and therefore boom, presto, I'm holy. I have not sinned in this way. Uh, and neglects the active obligation that we have to care for our neighbor, in this case, uh, the person of the opposite gender that we're working with or, or are engaging with. Uh, and so I think we have to be honest and say, look, this rule that I am setting up for myself to help help in this difficult fight uh, to, to be holy in a, in a sinful body, uh, in a sinful world, um, in that quest I have not loved my neighbor well. And so we need to be thinking about what can I do to love my neighbor better as I do this. And I appreciated this piece saying, look, here's some here's some consequences, some ways that that your desire to be holy can hurt other people. Um, and maybe we need to figure out a way um, to work harder for that not to happen. The the comparison for me, coming from a more complementarian background, um, right, in a complementarian church where you have predominantly male leadership. Um, it's very easy for that to become leadership that does not care about love or serve the women in the congregation. Like that's a real risk that can happen. Um, it's not enough for you to say, I will be complimentarian by only letting dudes preach. Boom, I'm done. I don't have to worry about the ladies at all. That's, that's not biblical. That is not loving the women in your church well. That is not caring for them as people made in the image of God. Instead, now, if you are a complimentarian, you have extra work to do. You can't rely on women elders to tell you what the women in your congregation want or need or how they're hurting. You've got to get up and you've got to go find out. You've got to go ask questions. You've got to create opportunities. You've got to do things to serve and, and help them um, because of this complementarian rule that you believe scripture um supports and, and commands. In the same way, if I believe that that a wise approach to sexual integrity is to have this rule great. 
guess what? I just gave myself a whole bunch of homework. I need to be on my A game trying to make sure that the women who work with me are given opportunities. I want to make sure that I'm not giving any of the men in my office uh, uh, an advantage. Maybe it means I don't do any working lunches. Maybe all my working lunches are two or more people besides myself, and I invite the women and the men all, and then that's fine. Um, maybe I you know, do stuff in non-eating situations, right? Because Pence's rule is not no women one-on-one, it's women and food. So, you know, so maybe we have the meetings at the office and we don't have food. Um, maybe I, I solicit opinions of the women who work for me for how, how, how well am I serving them? How many opportunities am I giving them? Okay, so the idea here is you embrace the rule. Yes, the rule, but it's the rule and. It's the rule and. You have to be seeking to honor and love, love the women that, that you work with or that you do church with or, or whatever it is. Um, so I think the idea here needs to be I, I want to love God and, and keep fighting for that personal integrity in my sexual and emotional life, um, but I don't, I don't stop there. So the solution is not to dismantle the rule. The solution is to, to add to it this obligation. Uh, to love the women and and other persons that you work with, um, and and by so doing, then right, you don't make them the bad guy. You're not going to view them as as wannabe seductresses at every turn. You're you're trying to help them and give them opportunities to succeed. Right, as feminists, we want to see all people flourish. Okay, do that. You can do that without having lunch with a woman by yourself. You can be dedicated to her flourishing in the workplace. So I don't deny that it's hard, and I don't deny that a lot of men probably don't do that. They only do the rule and nothing more. But I think if we're talking about what it should look like, it's the rule and. Love God and love your neighbor. Um, and I, just, I feel like there was a nod to that in this where he was acknowledging the lack of love to neighbor while um, affirming the desire to love God. Alexis, I appreciate your your charity towards him. I know I was picking at the uh, what I thought were the weak points, but I I really appreciate actually quite a bit of of the things he said. So thanks for bringing it back to that. Uh, and and before we move on to the next piece, um, I I want to say um, first thank you, Alexis, for clarifying um, how Pence's rule is is different from um, Graham's origination of it. Uh, Pence is uh it's about food and eating as you said um he doesn't eat alone with women but graham uh took it further than that i have heard many stories of him saying things like that he wouldn't even ride on an elevator alone with a woman uh so it it is interesting that um that pence seems to uh limit this to um, smaller circumstances, a smaller pool of circumstances, uh, dinner and, and eating and those types of things. Also, um, I, I would like to say that I appreciated the XM piece too. I particularly liked um, that he made room for sinfulness of all people because I, I feel like the a, a lot of the ire that this um, sort of controversy raised and people both inside and outside the church is the degree to which um, the situation plays to kind of gendered stereotypes of um, men as tempted and women as temptresses. The idea that men can't be alone with women because um, they just sort of have no willpower sexually. Um, and I, I like that Exum sort of doesn't let it be that narrow, that he recognizes that both um, men and women 
can can sort of be both sides of the equation um and and recognizes that that all people are sinful so i i do think that the the piece um does good by by making that clear can i comment on that real quick as long as you do it quickly we need to keep going oh sure yeah i just wanted to say that was one of the things that was very irksome to me, this idea that having this rule necessarily implies either that the man is like champing at the bit to have an affair or that the woman is like ready to seduce him. Uh, we do have these rules in other areas. Uh, any childcare facility that you take your kids to probably has a rule that you have to have two adults there all the time. And it's not because they think that the adult workers really want to hurt the kids. If they think that they want to hurt the kids, they don't let them work there. Um, it is just there because maybe there's someone one in a million, you don't want to take the chance. Uh, at churches, usually the offering is counted by two people. Um, again, not because you think the person counting the offering is dying to, to make off with uh, with people's hard-earned money, um, but because you just you put the rule in there just in case. And in, in all these other settings, we don't take it as a criticism or an accusation or a slight against the morality of the people involved. We acknowledge that that sometimes these things happen or that there are people out there who are um, aberrations, but they, they happen. Uh, and so I just, it, it bothers me that we assume that the only reason here has to be because we think everyone involved is uh, sexually promiscuous. And it's, th that's not the reason for the rule. Like the rule exists even for people who are not tempted in that regard at that moment. So anyway, that's all. Okay, thanks. Uh, I think we need to move on to the next piece, and I'm going to try to summarize as, as quick as I can here. Uh, so the second article that we read for this episode is uh, from Vox, and it's called uh, The Problem with Don't Eat Along with, Alone with Women, Good Character is Better Than Strict Rules. Um, and this is by Karen Swallow Pryor, who is a professor at Liberty University. And her argument, kind of as simply as possible, is that invoking the Billy Graham rule in mixed gender settings first doesn't treat women as equals, and second relies on deontological ethics rather than virtue ethics. Uh, deontological ethics are ethics based on rules. Um, Virtue ethics are most closely associated with Aristotle, and um, Aristotle's basic idea, um, Drew, since you're an actual philosopher, correct me if I get this wrong, is that when we think about virtue, we should think about it as like a, a series uh, of continua, that there's uh, a kind of golden mean in the middle and on either side there are virtues and vices that are equivalent uh, on, on the two extremes. There's an excess and a deficiency and a virtue in the middle. Um, here's Karen Swallow Pryor's definition. Virtue ethics relies on moral character that is developed through good habits rather than rules or consequences for the governing of behavior. Uh, Aristotle, as I said, defined virtue as the mean between two extremes, uh, excess and deficiency, habit of moral character, which, because it is a habit, becomes a kind of second nature. Um, an example that I've heard is like, if you're in battle, um, it's both wrong to be a coward, 
uh, and, and not act, sort of hide behind a tree so you don't get shot. And it's also bad to be foolhardy and rush ahead, um, charge guns blazing. What you want is the mean in the middle. You want to be prepared but cautious um, instead of the two extremes. So that's, that's what virtue ethics aims for. Uh, I picked this article to discuss because it was the most sort of nuanced Christian perspective that I saw in light of this controversy, um, but I, I did have a question about it. I'm, I'm not sure how you can develop a habit um, like the, the virtue that's mentioned here um, without first deciding to create the habit, and, and isn't that deciding a, a kind of rule? Um, Maybe the the two of you can um, can speak to that. What what do you think? So um, I should probably just say that I love Aristotle, uh, despite all of his flaws. <laughs> I'm hoping to write my dissertation on uh, uh, some part of the Aristotelian corpus, which might remain to be seen. But anyway, um, I liked a lot of what she said here. I think the one. Um, the one thought I had that she didn't really zero in on is Aristotle's emphasis on the uh, the kind of present state of one's character, uh, because virtue ethics is really relative to an individual's um, personal development. So the the mean between the extremes is not um, necessarily going to. Um, well, like as you were saying, Victoria, the if you are kind of excessive by temperament, then you need to kind of work in the other direction and vice versa. Um, and so then I think the the next interesting question to be raised in this setting would be: um, Are we assuming that all men, for instance, are um, kind of pre-programmed to the excessive uh, vice of um, I don't know. I, I don't know what he would say, but lust as opposed to, um, I guess the defect would be something like uh, a total lack of um, affection for another person, and then the the virtue would be somewhere in between. Um, but knowing where you are, kind of on that spectrum, in order to actively work in the opposite direction, um, I think it is entirely in line with what she's saying. Uh, but yeah, as far as the rule boundness, the rules, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I was asking myself the same question cause I, I want to believe that, um, yeah, r rules in the sense of personal, um, personally adopted maxims maybe, and to use the, you know, other deontological language from Kant, um, not that they are necessarily universal, but that they are the, the rules you're setting for yourself so as to help you achieve the kinds of habits that will more um, fully actualize your nature. That's as much as I, I can contribute. <laughs> Alexis? Well, I'm, a, I'm not an expert on virtue ethics by any stretch. Um, but I, going back to what uh, Drew was talking about earlier um, in, the, uh, in the, the previous piece, uh, the idea of guardrails 
I think that, that that is a helpful way to think about this rather than a rule that will save you. Right? As, as Christians, we know that the rule, the law is not able to save us. Like we know that from scripture, the law is not able to save anybody. Um, instead, we were saved by grace. We're saved by someone who kept the law on our behalf um, and, and, and paid for our failure to keep it. Um, so we, we should be always avoiding the idea of looking to the law for salvation. But uh, there's also this idea of, of we can be practical, uh, we can be uh, wise. Uh, and then th- this idea of, of guardrails, um, which I think uh, where I saw it mentioned was actually um, even in a secular context in some of the pieces. Um, if you're determined to clear, uh, you know, to go off the road, the guardrail isn't going to stop you, right? But it, it might slow you down enough for you to to think and to decide whether or not you actually want to do that. Is that consistent with with what you believe? Uh, and it also gives uh, gives you know a chance for the Holy Spirit to work, right? To step in and to convict you. Um, and I I I I think we we. We do this in a number of settings, right? We, we put some kind of obstacle, and it's not an impassable obstacle, but it's something uh, enough to give us a little bit of a pause in the hope that um, our better nature, that is the nature of Christ in us, will, will, uh, will kick in and will help us um, to not go further in that direction, right? We have... Um, uh, put filters on our computers, right? Uh, if, uh, if we're worried about consuming pornography, um, we... Uh, like I said, we have other other rules in in various circumstances. Um, we put windows on the offices, um, you know, so that that there could be just just a little bit of something uh, to deter us. And again, it's not going to be enough if we are hell bent on doing whatever it is. It's not going to be enough to stop us, um, but it, it does serve a purpose. And I don't want to discount that completely. Um, so yeah, don't look to the rules to save you, and don't uh, don't make the man made law. Uh, into into uh, biblical law, like don't get those confused, but um, but they do have a purpose and they do help. I I think Pryor speaks to that uh, later in the piece when she talks about prudence as a virtue. Uh, she says that prudence is what's missing from the conversation about the vice president's rules, and that prudence quote is the virtue most applicable in the guarding in the context of guarding against workplace romance, the habit of making right decisions. Uh, prudence, which literally means foresight, is the mean between cunning and negligence. Um, so I I think sort of uh, getting at, at what Drew said earlier about. Um, sort of caring for other people in a compassionate, non-neglectful way, um, but but not going as far as cunning, not using a relationship in, in a sort of nefarious planning or, or plotting way. Right. Uh, I want to keep, keep moving along since we're running short on time here. Uh, I said earlier in the episode that I was going to uh, exploit Alexis's legal expertise. So, uh, Alexis, tell us about the third and last reading on the docket for today. All right. So the the third reading for today is another Vox piece. Um, uh, It is uh, entitled Vice President Pence's Never Dine Alone with the Woman Rule Isn't Honorable. It's Probably Illegal. Uh, An Employment Lawyer Weighs In. Uh, And it's by Joanna Grossman. Uh, I am not an employment lawyer, so... um, way are varying uh, and differing opinions appropriately. Uh, I was very underwhelmed by this piece. Um, basically, the gist of the piece is um, these things that Mike Pence has not said he is doing, if he did them, they would be illegal. 
Um, so specifically talking about working lunches or giving access to the men in the office and not the women. Um, other pieces have popped up. I think there was one in the Washington Post that was a former uh, employee of Mike Pence who specifically pointed out that uh, meals with employees one-on-one just didn't really happen anyway. Um, so uh, the actual on-the-ground effect to for women um, uh, was was we just we don't know that that there was a, a strong one. Um, and I just I felt like the the Vox piece was very much uh, it was overstating the case, right? This thing that maybe he's doing, but he hasn't actually said he's doing. If he were doing it, that would be illegal. Um, but instead, it says it's actually illegal. And then they they specifically cite to this uh, example of this kind of horrifying case in Iowa, where a, a dentist had been hitting on his attractive hygienist. Um, his wife was jealous, uh, and he finally solved the problem by firing the hygienist for being too attractive. Basically, told her that. Um, and uh, the case was uh, was taken to the Iowa Supreme Court, where the Iowa Supreme Court actually said it wasn't gender discrimination. It was a specific uh, interpersonal situation, not like women in general. So, again, you have this author pointing to this case where they found there was no discrimination as illustrative of this Mike Pence rule that is like he's not doing any of those things, but it is applying to all women. So I just I felt like it was th- those were not analogous uh, comparisons at all. So I just I didn't feel like that was very helpful um, to to sort of point to again things we don't know that are going on would be illegal and then this other thing that wasn't illegal but is worse didn't think it was very helpful um, so uh, I will say again if we as Christians are trying to love our neighbors well and we are trying to absorb onto ourselves any inconvenience or harm that results from the rules that we surround ourselves with in order to seek personal holiness um, and we're actively seeking to uh, to encourage the flourishing of our, our fellow man, then we would be, uh, wouldn't be running afoul of the law in that way either. The, the whole situation would be resolved if you're seeking those things. Um, and again, you can have practical solutions like having three people at, at meals or not doing um, business stuff over lunch and things like that. Uh, also in this piece, uh, the author makes this very flippant uh, comment about how, oh, if you don't want to be accused of, um, misconduct, just just don't do misconduct, boom, not a problem. Or alternatively, uh, if you're falsely accused, they won't be able to prove it, so you're fine. Um, this fails to acknowledge the fact that an unproven accusation for, uh, for a lot of folks can be in many ways as damaging as a proven one, um, right? If, if you can't disprove it, if it remains out there in the ether uh, and you're a pastor or you are a political figure, that accusation alone can be enough to cause you serious harm. So it's not really fair to say if you can't be convicted in court, um, then you have no worries. Um, sure. Yeah. Court of public opinion is is still powerful. Yeah, and and if yeah, if the once that rumor's out there, it, it's very hard to chase it down and dispel it. Um, also, false accusations do happen, um, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be the woman who, uh, that you're that you are alone with who is the source of the accusation. Uh, I actually know of someone who had another person spreading rumors about their behavior with a woman uh, in order to try and and uh, undermine their professional. Uh, uh, well-being, basically, to, to to attack their professional career. So it wasn't even the woman that he would would have been alone with um, that would have been the source of that accusation, right? And if you're a powerful person, you're going to have people who would love to to undermine you in some way, uh, and they may be the the source of those accusations. It's not necessarily that you're worried about 
uh, your employees making those accusations themselves. So, like I said, I thought there were some some parts where they, the author was was failing to properly account for real risks that do exist. Um, and then I just I felt that the, the legal portion of it was was unhelpful because they were not comparable cases. Um, did you all have thoughts on the uh, the more legal perspective? I'm a political philosopher, so I tend not to <laughs> dally too much in the actual law. I just go for the, the the deep stuff and let you smart lawyer types figure it out. <laughs> um, I I don't know that I I have any sort of valid or or deep legal opinion. Um, I I did find it incredibly interesting that. Um, this piece has in common with the Karen Swallow prior piece the idea that um, Trump and Pence are sort of two um, two sociosexual extremes, uh, one on either side. Uh, I, I will not quote from the Vox piece because it contains language that I cannot say on the air. Um, but the the idea is that. Trump, you know, has publicly admitted sexually assaulting women, and Pence has this kind of, um, I hate when this word is used this way, but I'm going to do it anyway, like puritanical reputation um, on the other side. So I, th I thought it was interesting that that came up both in the piece about legality and the piece about virtue ethics. Also, um, I, I agree with your assessment, Alexis, that this piece is, is kind of... Um, all over the place in terms of its examples. Um, may maybe what I wanted from it wasn't really fair, but what what I wanted from it was a, a clearer explanation of of what Title Seven says and and sort of the implications of Pence's behavior for maybe the the future of Title Seven. But I'm I'm asking the piece to do something it doesn't do, so that's probably not fair. Well, and again, it's it's employment discrimination, right? There's not a law that tells you you have to go have social lunch with people that you don't want to go have a social lunch with. So we don't know how much Pence does or doesn't use meals for business purposes. Uh, and until we know whether or not his application of the rule actually has any effect on, on people's employment and workplace, um, we're not going to be able to speak well to whether or not it violates the law. We're just, we're just not going to. Because if he never talks about business over meals or he never goes one-on-one -on -one with anybody, um, then, then there isn't, there isn't going to be a discriminatory effect. So, um, yeah, we would just, we would need more data and then, than what we have based on just the interview with, with his wife. Okay, uh, I feel like we've covered a, a lot of material in not a lot of time, but I don't want this to be an, an overly long episode, so let's move on to our recommendation segment. Um, so at the end of every episode, our third segment is Passing On, where we uh, give you related um, articles or texts to think about that we have enjoyed. Drew, you go first. All right, so uh, this is something I'd mentioned before, but um, I, it kind of tracks my own development, I think. There was a time when kind of the the worst thing I could imagine was, like, deep down, I'm probably an adulterer that just hasn't, like, shown his true colors yet. And so i got to do everything I can to militate against that. Um, and even if that's, that's not what I am, I have to, like, militate against the appearance of that. Uh, and I think the the more I learn about 
feminism and stuff like the and patriarchy the concerns i have are much more like i think like deep down like i'm really just some kind of a you know an abusive person and i i just haven't done anything really horrible yet and I'm, i gotta militate against everything you know to avoid being that kind of a an awful kind of neanderthal um and then even when i'm like no that's that's probably not me but I got to militate against even the appearance of that. And so when I'm on an elevator, um, I, I, my office, my off, the graduate lounge is on the 14th story of this office tower. And so I, you know, at least once a day I, I'm with alone with like a woman and I just feel awful for being a man and <laughs> stuck in an elevator. I'm just like really, uh, feeling sorry for myself, feeling sorry for this person with me. and like, uh, I don't want to make you uncomfortable and I'm sorry for all of the history of violence. And <laughs> But anyway, um, I was thinking about all this a week or two ago when I came across a piece called um, – it's by Phaedra Sterling called uh, Schrodinger's Rapist. And it just talks about the the whole epistemic problem of not knowing uh, who is actually a sexual abuser – um, but knowing that a significant fraction of the population and thus probably a significant, uh, not significant, but at least someone in your circle of, um, acquaintances, uh, has done or, or will do, you know, awful violent things and, uh, not being sure of when that will happen. Um, and that's just something I've never had to think about from that end. And I've started to think about it on the end of the being a member of the gender who, who overwhelmingly tends to be violent in that way. Um, that's been giving me a lot to think about. Thanks for that recommendation. Uh, I'll be sure to check it out. Alexis, what do you have for us? Uh, well, I actually have a recommendation and then a request for recommendations uh, or just sort of feedback in general from um, other members of the uh Christian Humanist Podcast Network or listeners or whoever um, for some questions that I think the situation has raised that we we just don't have time to get into today. My recommendation is a, a, a piece at Slate um, that is uh, by, let's see, it is by Ruth Graham, but not that Ruth Graham. Um, and it is entitled uh, What the Pence Rule Looks Like in Practice. Um, and if you actually type in the, the URL for it, it's the Pence Billy Graham Rule Isn't That Weird in Practice. And it's it's looking at um, what people try to do uh, to make this, to, to, to still sort of succeed and, and exist in the world trying to abide by a version of this rule. And I thought it was just a really helpful look uh, at... at, at um, making it less exotic and making it look just more normal that people do this and, and yeah, and that's a, a normal part of life and it isn't necessarily inherently creepy and weird. Um, so that was, I thought, really helpful. Uh, the couple of questions that I had for people to, to give us feedback on if they are so inclined um, is uh, how does the, the, pen, the Billy Graham rule need to be updated in the technological age where we have social media and email and texting um, so we have lots of other ways to be alone with someone of the opposite sex. What does that look like? I know people who have shared Facebook accounts um, by the husband and wife or who never email someone or never text someone of the opposite sex. Uh, but how would we update that in, in a meaningful and, and careful way? Um, That's a great would, question. 
<laughs> how would we update it uh, now where we are more aware that, uh, as uh, as both of y'all has, have mentioned, uh, opposite gender interaction is not the only recipe for temptation and for sexual um, sin. Uh, so how do we how do we alter the rule to reflect that? Um, and even if people aren't worried about engaging in behaviors with someone of the same sex, the issue of appearance of impropriety and living above reproach or false accusations, for that matter, could still be relevant. So um, how should we alter the rule in light of those realities? Um, and then specifically to Pence, do we feel like the um, the sharing of a meal, is that different in some way? Like if Billy Graham didn't specifically earmark eating as a problem, uh, and Drew mentioned specifically the issue of alcohol, but I'm kind of curious about this eating together. I think we talked about this in our podcast, Thanksgiving podcast a few years ago, that there may be something different and, and differently intimate about sharing a, a meal with someone. Uh, do we feel like that is a different animal than having a business meeting with someone in an office or, or otherwise interacting. Um, I could certainly see how it would be, but I'm curious if other people feel that way uh, as well. And if so, how would you articulate um, how it's different and, and how that should affect the rule? Great, great questions. All um, listeners, if, if you have recommendations or, or, answers to those questions um, post on our Facebook page or write us uh, an email at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com so my recommendation is uh, a post on a blog called Reformed Book Reviews Uh, it's by a guy named Mike Hutchinson and is entitled Virtue Ethics The Billy Graham Rule and Mike Pence A Response to Karen Swallow Pryor Um, the it's kind of right there on the tin, and the title tells you what it is. Um, so I, I won't elaborate too much on that, but I, I do think that Hutchinson makes some good points in terms of um, of relating the concerns that Pryor has more specifically to the position of the vice president and the, the kind of um, specific power that he holds um, in the country in terms of uh, representing policy. So if you were um, interested in Pryor's article and want to see some other sides, um, we will link to Hutchinson's response in the show notes. And that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topics or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to say hi, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out show notes from this and other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Elizabeth Brimner is our intern. For Drew and Alexis, I'm Victoria. Tune in in about a month when we start our summer series on Christian lessons we learned from secular texts. Uh, I'll be leading a discussion on Margaret Atwood's novel The Handmaid's Tale and the recent television adaptation. Until then, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.